Actions of our hearts to be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. It is so nice to be warm. I want to tell you, it was chilly out there. Now, normally when uh, we have the sunrise service, everybody has a little candle. And when the sun comes up, they blow it out or it starts to get light. But today, nobody did that. It's like some kind of Indian campfire over there. It was amazing. And I want to thank Cynthia and Ida. Cynthia and Ida are two of our faithful 8 o'clock servers. So this service to them is in either completely Latin, Greek, or some other language they don't understand. But they're doing a fantastic job so far. Amen. It is Easter. And uh, my custom over the last few years on Easter is um, to give you an overview of, of the Bible. I call it the Bible from 80,000 feet. It's really important that we understand the flow of this work. More so, I think, now than ever. Because I think, um, as in, as in the former days of the church, uh, we're going to be uh, undergoing a form of persecution that we haven't experienced before. And uh, it's, it's, we're going to become part of the cancel culture in some ways, especially if you have a biblical worldview, as we do here at Christ the King. So it's important that we understand what this is and how it relates to our everyday life. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that was in them. And he did that in six days. And every time he created something, he said it was good. And then God created man. And he said that was very good. And uh, things were going along well, but he said, you know, it's not right that man should be alone. So he created woman as a helpmate. And he said, now, you have the run of the garden. The only thing you can't do is eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Just don't, don't, don't eat that, or if you do, you'll surely die. Got it. In chapter 3 of Genesis, in comes the enemy, evil, and uh, in the form of a serpent. And he says to Eve, did God tell you not to eat of any tree in the garden? No, no, just, just that one, or we'd die. You're not going to die. Basically, God's a liar. Look at it. It's beautiful. I bet it tastes wonderful. Give it a try. And she does, and she gives it to Adam. And then the serpent leaves, and God comes looking for them and says, Hello? Where are you? Oh, we're over here. Where were you? What were you doing? We're hiding. Why were you hiding? Well, we're naked. Well, who told you you were naked? That was never an issue before. And they told him, they tell God about what happened. Now, remember, before that, everything is copacetic. They're in relationship with one another. They're in relationship with nature. They're in relationship with God. It's all good. And then this happens, and they get expelled from the garden in Genesis 3, and death and disease and disappointment and doubt and all those things come into the world. It's disrupted. That connection between God and man is severed. And this book, this Bible, 
is the story of how that gets repaired. So when you ask, why do we have death and destruction and disappointment and all those things and COVID? It's because of Genesis 3. We live in a Genesis 3 world. And they have Cain and Abel, and Abel offers a sacrifice to God, and God receives it, and Cain offers a sacrifice to God, and he doesn't receive it, so Cain kills Abel because he's jealous. And things go from bad to worse, and God says, I'm going to get rid of the whole bunch. I'm going to start over again. So he raises up Noah, and Noah's in the middle where it doesn't rain. I want you to build this big boat, this big ship. It's called an ark. And he takes about 120 years to build that thing. It's a long time. People are laughing at him. What a dope. But then it starts to rain. Before that, he brings on animals. So I learned something on Friday. Not Friday. Anyway, I just learned it a couple days ago. He brings on animals, seven of each. It's the unclean animals that he brings on two by two. So seven clean animals of each kind and two unclean animals of each kind. The rains come, and off they go. And for 40 days and 40 nights, they're afloat. And then, the, then it decreases, and out they go. And they start over. And over time, you have people raised up. The world is repopulated. And one of the people is Abram, otherwise known as Abraham. And he lives in Ur of the Chaldees. This is Iraq, modern-day Iraq. And God says, uh, Abraham, Abram, I want you to head west. I'll tell you when to stop. And they stop in the land of Canaan. And Abraham and Sarah, his wife, are very old, and they have a son, Isaac. And they love this little boy. And God says, uh, Abraham, I want you to take Isaac, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. And Abraham has Isaac pick up the wood, and they go up the hill. And he's got the knife in his hand, and he's ready to do it. And God said, stop. I didn't really want you to do it. I just wanted to see if you would. Sacrifice the ram in the bush over there. And so he does that. And then Isaac gets married, and he has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob <clears throat> is the younger of the two sons, but he steals his brother's blessing. And he has 12 sons of his own. And the second youngest is Joseph. His brothers aren't crazy about Joseph because Joseph is his father's favorite. And he gives him this really nice coat, the coat of many colors, the technicolor coat. And Joseph says things like, you know, I had a dream the other day, and I dreamed we were all sheaves of wheat, and you guys were all bowing down to me. What do you think of that? So one day, Joseph is with his father, and, the, and everybody else is out minding the herd, the flock. And his father says, go see how they're doing. Come back and report. So he goes out there, and they see him coming, and they say, this is our chance. Let's get rid of this guy. And they throw him down a well until they can figure out what they're going to do with him. And along comes a caravan of Midian slave traders. And they say, ah, we'll make some money on the deal. And they haul him up, and they sell him. And off he goes to Egypt. And he's bought by a man named Potiphar, a very wealthy, important person in Egypt. And Potiphar 
takes a liking to Joseph, and he raises him up, and Joseph is now the head of Potiphar's household, all the servants and everything going on. <coughs> Potiphar's wife also likes Joseph, and she wants to sleep with Joseph, and Joseph says, I'm not doing that. And he goes to get out of the room, and she grabs his cloak, and she pulls it off, and he runs. And then she shows it to her husband and said, see what he tried to do to me? And next thing you know, Joseph is in prison. Well, go with Joseph. The warden takes a liking to Joseph, and he raises him up to run the prison. Not a bad deal. Now, somehow, the cupbearer for Pharaoh and the baker for Pharaoh got cross-threaded with Pharaoh, and they both find themselves in jail, in the prison. And they each have a dream, and they go, I don't know what the dream means. And Joseph says, well, tell me your dream. And the cupbearer tells him his dream, and the baker tells him his dream. And Joseph said to the baker, "Uh, in three days you're going to lose your head. And he says to the cupbearer, in three days you're going to be restored. And lo and behold, in three days the the baker lost his head, and the cupbearer was restored. And as the cupbearer is leaving the prison, Joseph said, me, don't forget me, hello. And the cupbearer is like, goodbye. And off he goes, and he serves Pharaoh. Two years go by, and Pharaoh has a dream, and he doesn't know what it means. Seven fat cows, seven skinny cows, what the heck is that? And the cupbearer goes, oh, you know, I know a guy that can interpret dreams. Let me go get him for you. And he goes to get Joseph, and they bring him out, and Pharaoh tells him his dream, and Joseph says, the seven fat cows mean seven years of plenty, and the seven skinny cows mean seven years of famine. So during the seven years of plenty, you better store up because the famine's going to be really, really bad, and people from all over the world are going to be coming to Egypt because you're going to be the only place in the world that has anything to eat. And that's what Pharaoh does. And Pharaoh says, you're amazing. And he raises him up to be the number two guy in the whole kingdom, gives him his signet ring, and gives him that authority. Well, lo and behold, seven great years, wonderful, and then come the seven years of famine. And up in Canaan, Jacob and his sons are hungry. And Jacob says to his sons, go down to Egypt and get grain. Get grain. Because we need it. Bring it back. So they go down. And one thing leads to another. And they find out that Joseph is number two in the the kingdom. And they're standing before Joseph. And they think he's going to have them executed. But he doesn't. They're restored. It's wonderful. Jacob comes down. And they all settle in the land of Goshen. And it's, it's great, you know. And then years go by, and strangely enough, in the beginning of Exodus, it says there arose in the Egypt a king that did not know Joseph. And you say to yourself, how does a king in Egypt not know Joseph? I mean, who he was and what he did. No Facebook. No Twitter. No nothing, apparently. All the Pharaoh knows is you've got these Israelites over here in this area, and they're multiplying like rabbits, and they're going to take over if we don't stop them. So they enslave the Israelites, and for 450 years, they're slaves. And then the Pharaoh says, oh, when, you have, when these Israelites have a little boy, I want you to kill the boy. And the midwives don't really do that. Little boy is born, 
The mother puts him in a basket, floats him down the river, and Pharaoh's daughter picks him up. And the little boy's named Moses. And his mother goes down and says, oh, I'll raise that baby for you in your palace. Moses is raised in the palace of the Pharaoh. And then at some point later in his life, he gets into an altercation with an Egyptian. He kills him. He's seen, and he flees to the desert where he becomes a herdsman. And then one day, God appears to him in a burning bush, and he says, I want you to go back to Egypt and tell the Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses says, you know, I'm really not much of a public speaker. This is not my thing. I'd rather you got somebody else. And God says, no, Moses, you're the guy. But Aaron's a good speaker. He's going to go with you, and he'll talk to the Pharaoh. And you know the story. There's ten plagues back and forth. There's the Nile turns to blood. There's, there's frogs. There's flies. There's gnats. There's all kinds of things. And finally, he says, if you... Um, If you have a firstborn son or, or animal, God is going to take it. And what you need to do is kill a lamb and put the blood over. Now, Mom, Mom, as you're leaving the church, you know we have a wiggle room. You know what that is? Okay, whatever, just so you know. You can go in there. Back to our story. Put the lamb of the of the of the put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of the Israelites' home, and the and the angel of death will pass over your home, the Passover. And the Egyptians don't know that they don't do that, and the firstborn is killed. And Pharaoh finally says, "All right, get out. I've had enough." And off they go, a couple million of them, with gold and silver and all the things that the Egyptians have given given to them. And now. They get to the Red Sea, and they realize the Egyptian army is after them, and they go, oh, boy, now what? And God says, just smack your staff on the ground, and the Red Sea parts. They get across, and then it closes over the Egyptian army. Now they're in the desert, and they wander for about two years, and then they wind up over this area, the new, uh, new world over there. And they send in 12 spies. 12 spies, and they come back, one from each tribe, and they come back, and they say, it's wonderful, it's fruitful, it's lush, it's fertile, couldn't be better, but the problem is it's inhabited by giants, and there's no chance. We can't take them. Now, two of the spies were Joshua and Caleb, and they both said, wait a minute, what are you talking about? God's the one that sent us in here. He's with us. We can do it. And they grumble, and they finally say, all right, we'll go. And they go because, they've inter- they, because they disobeyed God. They lose. They get creamed, and they come back. And God says, for every day that you spies were in the, in the promised land, you're going to spend a year in the desert, 40 days, 40 years. That's why they wandered for 40 years. They go around and around and around, and finally they get to the promised land, and they're looking at it. And Moses isn't going to get, in, get to go in because at some point in the desert they needed water and God said to Moses, speak to the rock. And Moses hit the rock twice with his staff and the water came and God said, because you disobeyed me, you're not going into the promised land when the time comes. That's always bothered me. But I'm not God, so 
off they go. Moses doesn't get in. He dies. Joshua and Caleb lead the charge. It takes them about seven years, but they conquer these peoples, and they actually get, get to settle. And they have a good run. They have a good run, Joshua and Caleb. And then things kind of go south because they, they go to a period of the judges, which is about 300, 350 years. And over that time, there's about 12 judges, and judges a leader. And they'll start out when they're in, in, in relationship with God, and then they'll start to head south. And they'll begin to worship the local gods and the idols, and they'll marry the foreign women and do all these things that move, remove them from God. And then they'll get down to the bottom, and they're getting beaten up by the locals, by these tribes. And they'll cry out to God, save us, and God will send a judge. And all of a sudden, it starts to come back, and they'll get back up into relationship with God. And this will last for 20 or 40 or 60 or even 80 years. And then it'll start all over again, and a new judge will come. Deborah, Gideon. The last one is Samson. Samson. And then after that, there's a period of prophets. And one of the prophets is Samuel. And the people go to Samuel, and they say, we want a king. And Samuel says, we, uh, we don't have kings. We're not like everybody else. And the people say, we want to be like everybody else. We don't want to be different. This is one of the things that's happening in our culture today. A lot of people who call themselves Christians say, we'd just rather be like everybody else and not be so different. And God says, I want you to be different. You're part of be in the world, but not of it. And he, God says, hey, give him a king. So they say, Saul is our king. Saul is the king for 40 years. Not a good king. And sort of during that time also, Samuel anoints David as king. So you've got Saul the king and you've got David kind of the shadow king. And they go at each other back and forth the whole time. They're on good terms. They're out of fellowship, whatever it might be. Saul is killed in battle. And David becomes king, and he's, he's there for 40 years. And his son Solomon takes over after he um, dies. And he's there for 40 years. And it's called the United Kingdom. All 12 tribes are in relationship and fellowship with one another. Then Solomon dies. The temple is built. It's all wonderful. And Solomon dies, and there's a falling out. And you have the divided kingdom. The ten tribes in the north are Israel. The two tribes in the south are Judah. Israel has 22 kings over its life, never had a good king. All of the kings were bad. Judah, back and forth. Isaiah comes and begins to preach to Israel. It says, you, you guys are over here and you're over here, but you got to be here. You see this path right here? You need to get back on the path. This is where God wants you to be. And they don't pay any attention. And Isaiah keeps saying, if you, don't, if you don't do this, bad things are going to happen. And sure enough, in 722 B.C., Assyria comes in and wipes out Israel, the ten northern tribes. They take away the best and the brightest, and they repopulate what was left with the dregs of other places that they have conquered. And they intermarry with the Israelites that are still there, and they become the Samaritans. These are who the Samaritans are these half-breeds in the eyes of full-blooded Jews. Jew, uh, Jeremiah preaches to Judah. It's the same thing. 
And in 586, Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon comes in and does the same thing in Judah. And off they go, and Daniel was part of that group that went to Babylon. And they're there for 70 years. And then after that, King Cyrus sends Nehemiah and Ezra and Zerubbabel, say that five times fast, to rebuild the walls of the city and the temple. And then for 400 years, God is silent. Nothing. No word. And then we have somebody born to aging parents, John the Baptist. And as he grows up, he starts to look like Elijah, the prophet. He's wearing camel skin clothes, and he eats locusts and wild honey, and he's out in the middle of the desert, and he's preaching repentance. The kingdom of God is at hand, and people are streaming out to him to be baptized in the Jordan. Around the time that John is born, you have another baby that was born in Bethlehem, Jesus. He moves to Nazareth, and he grows up. He's just a very obscure person. He's this Nazarene, Nazareth carpenter named Jesus. Next thing you know, he's out there in the desert with John, and John looks at him, and he says, whoa, <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I shouldn't be baptizing you, Jesus. You should be baptizing me. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I am not worthy to untie this guy's sandals. And Jesus says, no, this is the way God wants it to be. And he's baptized, and he begins his three-year ministry. And he's doing amazing things. And at one point, John is arrested by Herod. John the Baptist is arrested by Herod, and he sends his, his guys to see Jesus, and they say to Jesus, are you really the one? Because this wasn't part of the plan that John would be arrested. And he never says yes or no. Jesus never says yes or no about anything. He says, go tell John what you see. The dead are raised, the dumb speak, the deaf hear, the lame walk, and the blind see. And that was the kicker because no one in the Old Testament has ever healed the blindness. That was a miracle reserved for the Messiah. Jesus was the one. So they go back and they tell John. Jesus also had a habit of alienating the establishment, the elites, the leaders, because the people were beginning to follow him. And you can tell their attitude at the end of John 11 when he raises Lazarus from the dead. I mean, think about it. He raises somebody from the dead who's been in the tomb for four days, so no doubt about it, he's dead. And at the end of that chapter, the, the, the establishment says, now we really got to kill this guy. We got to get rid of this guy because the people are going to follow him. And what will that mean for us? There goes our privilege and our perks and our power and our position. Can't have that. So at the end of the three years, he comes into Jerusalem on a donkey to fulfill prophecy. The palms go on the road. Hosanna, Hosanna. He goes to the temple. He throws out the money changers. He teaches. Goes to Bethany and comes back. Goes to Bethany and comes back. Teaches. And on good, on, on, um, Maundy Thursday, there's the Last Supper. Goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's arrested. There's six trials. Annas, Caiaphas, and Pilate, Herod, Pilate. And then on Good Friday, he's crucified. And he's in the tomb 
And on today, Easter day, he rises from the dead. Hallelujah, he is risen. Amen. There was a wonderful woman named uh, Ritzy Tulumas. Who remembers? Remember, remember Ritzy? Yeah. Ritzy was Greek, and she had white hair, and she had these two, always had her hair in two, what do you call them? Buns. Buns. And she would always be there at Grace for the early service. And she'd see me, and she'd go, Christos Aneste! Christ has risen in Greek. And then when I hear that, Christ has risen, I always think of, of her. Well, he did rise from the dead, and he appeared to his disciples for 40 days, and after 40 days, he ascended into heaven. But he said, I'll be back, coming back. And then the disciples, they don't know what to do. So they're, they're in the upper room, about 120 of them, and they're all like, what are we going to do now? And then the Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost, and these, these wimps are now transformed into powerhouses. Peter opens the window, and he preaches. There's got to be a million people because it's Passover in Jerusalem, and 3,000 people come to faith. And then the gospel begins to spread. Peter ministers to the Jews. Paul has an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, and he becomes Paul, Saul becomes Paul, and he's, he's ministering to the Gentiles. And he'll go to a city on one of these missionary journeys, and he, goes to, he always goes to the synagogue first. He always goes to God's people first. And he preaches Jesus. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't beat around the bush. He just tells them this is the deal. He's the one. This is the one we've been waiting for. Three kinds of people every time. Yay, that's what we've been waiting to hear. Where do we sign up? Two, that's interesting. Hadn't heard that before. When are you coming back? And three, we've got to kill this guy now because he's, he's turning people against us. So that gospel, that message of, of, of hope, See, at that resurrection, the relationship that was severed in Genesis 3 is re repaired. It's healed. And that message of good news, that gospel message, went from uh, the Middle East, through the Mediterranean, through Europe, to Africa, to India. And in the 17th century, it came here to the New World. And this place was founded by people on the principles of Jesus Christ and the gospel. Despite what you're hearing and despite what our kids are being taught, this nation was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. Not a Christian nation, but it was founded on godly principles. And the gospel is very simple. The gospel means good news. And the good news is that that relationship that was severed in Genesis 3 can now be repaired for each and every one of us. As we understand and realize that we have a sinful nature when we were born, did you ever have to teach your kids to be selfish, share their toys? Did you ever? Did you, I don't think so. just comes naturally. It's the opposite that we have to try to train our kids to do. When you understand your, your, your condition like that and you're walking away from God, when you repent, you stop, metanoia, and you turn around and you start walking back toward God now. And you thank Jesus for what he did for you on the cross because the reason he went to the cross was to pay the penalty for my sin because there's nothing I can do to make it right with God. When I accept that, I am reconciled with the Father through the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit.
That's the gospel. And one day he will be back. He will be back. He said, I'm coming back. And I'm looking forward to that day when he comes back. Any time would be fine with me. But see, I'm looking forward to it because I know him. made this connection and this transaction, and that's why we have evangelists, and that's why we have churches, and that's, that's why we have the gospel. There's some good things happening. There's an awakening happening, happening in the United States right now. There's a renewal that's happening in the United States right now. In places you're not aware of, that you'd never expect. California, places like that, with gang members and drug addicts and all kinds of people that you probably never find in church on an Easter morning. But they're gathering and they're coming and they're hearing the word and they're giving their lives to Jesus Christ. And that Holy Spirit is moving in a very powerful way right now. And it's exciting. And I'm looking forward to see what God has in store for our nation. I am not discouraged. I'm not doubtful. I'm encouraged and I'm hopeful. And I hope you are too because he has risen. Hallelujah, the Lord is risen indeed. Amen.